Hello and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am so delighted to say that this podcast is brought to you by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. Alighieri is a collection of jewellery inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. Each piece corresponds to one of the poet's 100 poems. As the pilgrim journeys through the realms of hell, purgatory and paradise, he encounters mythical creatures, scraggy landscapes and terrifying demons. Just like Dante's subjects, each piece of jewellery is battered, imperfect and a little bit melancholy. Every piece tells a story, embodying a modern heirloom that will travel with you on your own adventures. I am so excited to announce that from August the 1st to the 22nd, the gates of Alighieri Old Town will be open, bringing loved ones together to reunite, shop, dine and explore in an old Italian piazza placed in the centre of London. Close to Old Street Station, Fordingley Dingley Place will be transformed into an Italian utopia, transporting you to the holiday that 2020 has not yet allowed. The town will offer Alighieri's signature modern heirlooms, bespoke talismans, flash treasure trove discounts and one-of-a-kind souvenirs. In the heart of the piazza lies Casa Luna, the town's oldest restaurant where they serve antipasti, hand-rolled pasta and dolce. Visit alighieri.co.uk for more details and to book your shopping appointment in the Alighieri Old Town or to book dinner at Casa Luna. Meanwhile, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online orders to Refuge. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast today is the world-renowned art historian and writer Natalie Lettner. Born in Salzburg and now based in Vienna, Lettner received her PhD at the University of Applied Arts, Vienna. Having taught art history classes at Bard College, New York, at the Webster University, Vienna, and at the European Forum, Albach, Lettner has also worked at the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, one of the world's most important collections of art, where she writes and produces the audio guides for the huge collections and every exhibition. An author of many essays about contemporary art and film history, Lettner has written numerous acclaimed books, including Image of Evil, Devils, Serpents and Monsters in Contemporary Art, and is currently working on the history of Austrian art, from the Venus of Willendorf to Maria Lasnig, a comprehensive introduction to Austrian art for the general public to be published next fall. But the reason why we are speaking with Natalie today is because she also authored the first complete and detailed biography of one of the most important and overwhelmingly fascinating artists ever to exist, the great 
late, Maria Lasnig, who is very excitingly the artist we are going to be discussing. Today, welcome to the podcast, Natalie. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm fine. It's great to be here. And I really love your podcast. So I'm, I'm very happy <laughs> to be here with you and to talk about my beloved Maria Lasnik. Yes, no, it's such a treat for me. It is such a treat for me. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and speaking about Maria Lasnik, because I mean, she was just such a pioneer of her day. I mean, spanning the most part of the 20th century, Maria's fierce devotion to self-portraiture saw her paint these raw and fleshy works that range from darkly funny to also often extremely grotesque and challenge the way that we just sit in our bodies. So I'd love to just start off by asking you, how do you feel when you're confronted with a Maria Lasnig work? I think I will pick one particular painting that I saw for the first time in 2009. And I think it also instigated me to take on this long journey of writing her biography. And this painting is called You or Me. I'm sure you know it. Yes, fantastic. And that was in the exhibition in 2009 in Vienna. And this exhibition only showed work from her last decade. So from her 80th, to her 90th birthday, if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, by the way, this exhibition had been shown in London in 2008 at the Serpentine Gallery. And when you entered the exhibition in Vienna, the first painting you saw showed a life-size naked old woman. Of course, Lasnik herself. She made, as you already mentioned, countless self-portraits throughout her life. And so you saw this huge naked woman with her aging body and an incredibly intense gaze. And that's not all, because in her hands, she holds two guns, one directed at herself and the other at the beholder, at us. So I think whoever sees this painting will never forget it again. And it has such a power, such an impact. And for me, it contains the whole story about women and art in general, I think. And in a nutshell, also what Maria Lasnik's powerful art is about. Her blunt, her candid, her taboo-free approach to her own body her surprising use of color. If you have seen it, it's a glaring, it's a beaming painting. But what is it about? For me, it poses existential questions. Who am I as a female artist? Where do I direct my aggression at myself or at the other? And it's fraught with potential violence, but it's still also funny. And for me, it's also (laughs) about how self-empowerment and self-doubt are the two sides of a coin. And so much in her life, these are two inseparable aspects. Like you said just now, it, it's unforgettable. Mm-hmm. You know, she's either pointing a gun at her head or she's pointing it directly at mm-hmm. you. And it's those piercing eyes and that gaping mouth that it's just like this tension that she's building up completely. And it, it's not even like she's even filled in a background. If anything, she just has this blue, just slightly round the body. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Maria Lasnik hardly painted backgrounds. She hated painting backgrounds. And in the very last months of her life, she even asked her assistant to paint the background for her because she didn't want to do it. But he, of course, declined. But I find it so interesting when you see a portrait which has no background because the pure intensity of it is just heightened 
an enormous amount. Exactly. That's what makes her portraits so strong. Not just her self-portraits. Even when she does portraits about others, she did, for example, a whole series about country people. Those were her neighbors in her summer studio. And what is also funny about it, that these neighbors were her students once. When she was an elementary school teacher in the 40s, now they were old people, and she portrayed them. And the background was always a glaring yellow. And the portrait was just the contours and white. It's a very impressive series, I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, when was it that you first discovered Maria Lasnig's work? If you live in Austria, you, of course, you're familiar with her work. You know about her by default. But when I really got struck for the first time, that was in 1992, when she released her last short film, Oh, yes. Because she didn't just paint, she also made movies. And in her little movies, she used her painting. So it's also about painting and about art. Most of her movies she did in the 70s in New York, in this feminist context. But in 1992, it's called the Maria Lasnik Cantata. And that is her autobiography in eight minutes and 14 stanzas. She was 73 at the time and looked back upon her life and sang about it. And for every stanza and every phase of her life, she dressed up in a different costume, ranging from a sailor uniform to cowgirl to punk rocker. And last but not least, she even incorporated Lady Liberty. You might have seen that. Yeah. And she sings her autobiography as a street ballad. And when I saw this short film for the first time, I was completely struck because I thought, who is this extraordinary woman who rendered all the tragedies of her life and all her struggling with so much human lightness? And that was really what fascinated me. And that is also, apart from being a highly gifted artist, that is one of her major accomplishments. Uh, there's so much pain and sadness in her work, and at the same time, it's full of humor. Yes, totally. It appears so confronting in so many ways, whether it's disturbing, shocking, or even saddening sometimes. Yet there is always this element of bizarreness and humour. But I'd love to ask, what really drew you to actually embarking on this very ambitious project? Yeah, I will tell you how this came about. I was sitting in a typical Viennese coffee house with the programme director of the Brandstätter Verlag, that's my publisher in Austria, and we were talking about art books and how difficult they were to sell. And then I said, well, yes, but I think there's still one genre that works pretty well, and that's biographies. But I added, that's nothing I can or I even wanted to do. The next moment, the publisher, Elisabeth Stein, looked at me and said, and what about Maria Lasnik? And you won't believe it, but without even thinking a moment, I said, oh, sure, I will write you a biography about Maria Lassik. <laughs> <laughs> so, you see, it wasn't even my idea yeah. originally. That's, oh my kind, that's kind of embarrassing, but yeah. that's how it was. <laughs> that's how it was. But, of course, there are a lot of reasons why I wanted to do that. There's no other Austrian artist I am as fascinated with as with Maria Lassik. 
Yeah. Totally. So that's how it came about. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> I love that. I love that. No, it's, it's very encouraging, I think. But I want to go back to the beginning of Maria Lasnik's life because you mentioned sure. just there she grew up in Corinthia. I mean, she was born in Austria in 1919. I mean, can you tell us about her upbringing? Was art that was something that was always present in her life? Yes. First, I, I want to mention one other thing which is connected to that. Because one of the major questions I was interested in was why recognition came so late in her life. Of course, there is an obvious reason, like all women artists, especially of her generation, had to deal with a lot of obstacles and pitfalls. But there was something else, and I always sensed that there was something else. That's first her difficult origin, and connected with that, her difficult personality, which of course has to do with her origins. Maria Lasnik was born in 1919 out of wedlock. And that at that time, in 1919, in a yeah. small village in an Austrian rural region. And her mother, without husband, left her with the grandmother and went to the city to work there. And this grandmother was a poor, illiterate laborer at a farm. She was living in a shack. And Lasnik always said she hardly didn't speak until she was six years old wow. because this grandmother didn't speak that much with her. She was always on, in the fields working. Yeah. So, and then at six, her mother brought her to the provincial town of Klagenfurt where she was living. And this mother in the meantime had married a master baker, Jakob Lasnik. And that's how Maria Lasnik got her oh, last name. Yeah. Mm -hmm because he adopted her. Jakob Lasnik was 30 years older than her mother, and this wasn't to be a happy marriage. And there was a lot of fighting going on. The mother was depressed. And all this instilled in this little girl a deep mistrust of relationships, not just between men and women, but in general. Yeah. And the relationship between mother and daughter was also pretty difficult. The mother used to blame her for her bad marriage. And so this was not easy. And little Maria also had a difficult time in school. The others teased her as a country bumpkin, made fun of her. But already at that time, her talent was discovered, not just by teachers, but also by relatives whom she already portrayed at the time. Wow. Yeah? So as a child, she had this bad reputation. She was often criticized for staring so strangely at people. And when these people later saw how she had portrayed them, often just on the back of an invoice, so it'd be a coaster, yeah. then these people were pretty impressed. Uh, and, wow. And Lasnik herself, she used to say, I caught them. I got them. Yeah, that's oh. how she saw that. Yeah. So portraying somebody was giving her power. But that's so interesting because I think when you're confronted with one, you know, just that work that you just discussed, you or me, you know, the fact that even in her eighth decade, she's still catching people. And it's as though, yes, she's catching people from her perspective. But then by doing that, the actual subject looking back at us, mm -hmm. the viewer is really catching Absolute. us and putting us into like a really quite uncomfortable position in a way. Definitely. I think many people are uncomfortable with Lasnik's work, unfortunately, because that also makes it a little bit difficult for her. But 
I never was. Yes, uncomfortable maybe, but in an exciting way. Yes, I definitely agree. I love how painting has this ability to make us feel uncomfortable and feel like, especially with Lasnik's work, almost trapped in our bodies. I think that's what makes painting exciting. So after she finishes school, she becomes a teacher, but then she moves to Vienna age about 21, 22. And am I right in thinking she actually cycles 200 miles to go and attend <laughs> Vienna's Academy for Fine Arts? Or is that a well, myth? That's, that's right. That's right. I, I, I first thought this is one of her typical stories that she's telling, but I think she did it. And people went a lot by bike in those days. So it's not that improbable. Yeah, she applied to the Academy of Fine Arts in 1940, and she was immediately accepted. But we have to know that this is the Nazi period, yep. of course, and artists were completely cut off from current trends of modern and contemporary art. So this was, yeah, it was nevertheless interesting for her technically, but she missed a lot out in those in those uh, years but after the war in the late 1940s and the early 1950s she was really eager to catch up and she very quickly did so yeah just it's interesting because i've read that you know the students were encouraged to paint with formal academic style yet you look at a work from 1945 like expressive self-portrait and it's as though she's kind of going against all of that but at the same time you think about her predecessors in vienna who were sheila max beckman kokoschka sure. and and it's as though she's i mean was she interested in adopting traits from them she didn't know them at the time. That at oh least, my gosh, that, really? at, that at least is what she always said. Wow. She said she came from the countryside. In Carinthia, you didn't see modern art oh in the gosh. 30s. Yeah. And then there were the 40s and the Nazi period. All of that was considered to be degenerated art. The books were taken out of the libraries. She didn't have any access to that. Wow. But nevertheless, in 1944... She made a self-portrait that was on her wall until she died. She always had it in on her studio wall or in her apartment. And she called it her first real self-portrait, even though she had done yeah. other self-portraits before, more Rembrandt-style-like. And she called it her green self-portrait because she worked with green and red with this complementary colors in the portrait and here she said she used for the first time what she called deep color seeing she looked at the patch of paint she looked at it she concentrated and she tried to exclude everything else and then the color changed and became something new and she always recalled that as the moment when she discovered modernism for herself all on her own. And so that's why she was so proud of this portrait. But she yeah. finished her studies during the Nazi period. And so what was it like for her, you know, starting out as an artist in a post-war Europe? This for her was paradise. She loved it. She had a studio in Carinthia in Klagenfurt. This studio became a hotspot of the local avant-garde. She was in the center of the attention. Everybody was in love with her, even though being in love with her was very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, 
she very quickly tried to work herself through all the styles, expressionism, surrealism, cubism, abstract art. So there was a whole mix of things and of styles. Yeah, And it looks a little bit eclectic if you see this works today. But on the other hand, they all had already one agenda, which she knew already about, but she didn't have a term for it yet. And that was her own body. Even if she did abstract art, it was always about her own body and about yeah that which later she would come to call body awareness. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting. You're looking at works, even like Beams from 1950 or Head from 1956. Even though she's experimenting with just colour and abstract shapes, you can still see these kind of bodily elements that go in. But am I right in thinking in 1951, she actually travelled to Paris and met the likes of Breton and then returned to Vienna a few years later, but then settled in Paris again? I mean, why was Paris influential for her work and was it the Surrealists that she was influenced by? The Surrealists in the late 40s for the Austrian artists were the avant-garde, even though this wasn't the case anymore. So when she went to Paris, just for the, this was a short trip, she went together with Arnold Reiner, who was actually one of the most famous Austrian artists, but not at that time yet. And their idea was to meet the surrealists, to see what they had dreamt of for such a long time, to see this avant-garde art. And they were utterly disappointed. Because <gasps> really? They were utterly disappointed because Breton has become by then a rather old-fashioned old guy. <laughs> and oh, with no. His real, yeah, that's in the early 50s. This wasn't cooking anymore. And yeah. This wasn't boiling anymore. But as so often in life, if you want something, you get something else. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't get the high life of surrealism, but they met young artists of informal art, which was the avant-garde art of the time. And they saw that and they were thrilled. They were absolutely excited about it and they brought it back to Vienna. They were the pioneers of informal art in Austria. Am I right in thinking that she actually saw work by Jackson Pollock though too? Probably. There was an exhibition in a gallery and you saw abstract expressionists and the contemporary French artists of the time all together, which was quite a rare thing. But this exhibition, both of them always uh, told the story that they had seen it. But what they saw was a huge poster. And on this poster, they saw all these paintings of these artists and, and among them Jackson Pollock. The 50s in Vienna, they are important for me because I have told you before that in Carinthia and Klagenfurt, she had this great time as a paradise. Yeah? Then she moved to Vienna, to the capital, where the real art is, where everything is. And there things became very, very hard for her and very harsh. And that, I think, is important because, nevertheless, she never gave up. She tried to get an exhibition in this one big gallery, which was important at the time, which was the St. Stephen's Galerie St. Stefan. 
and she didn't get it. And Arnulf Reiner did. And Arnulf Reiner, you know, her ex-lover was 10 years her younger. So this was really a hard competition for her. Yeah. And her all her relationships were difficult. This ate on her her whole life, even though their relationship wasn't that long. It was five years or so. But then in 1960, she manages to get an exhibition at that place in this gallery. Oh, wow. And there's a photo I want to tell you about because I think it's so telling. This photo, she used it for the exhibition folder. And this photo shows Maria Lasnik amidst all her paintings. And on this photo, she drew herself over her lips a moustache. For me, this is such a sophisticated and at the same time humorous message. It's obviously better to be a man if you want to exhibit in this specific gallery or if you want to succeed in the art world of the 50s in general as a woman. So she got a lot of recognition for this show. But interestingly, the reviews in a certain way confirmed her moustache. Yeah? The critics praised her for her almost male intellect <gasps> and her masculine painting style. Yeah. No. So this was the highest praise a female artist could get in the 50s Oh my gosh, well it sounds like something from the 17th century or something. <laughs> <laughs> to paint like a man, that's the wow. highest praise. So this was difficult for her. And she was really frustrated with Vienna about that, even though this exhibition was a success. And that's why she moved to Paris, because she expected there everything to be much better. <laughs> in the 60s and in the 50s, I think all over the place, even in the US, was pretty hard for women. Mm. But nevertheless, this was an important impulse for her because Vienna wasn't important at that time. So Paris to her and to all the artists at that time in Europe still seemed to be the hotspot, even though that had changed at that time. It was already New York. But if you read diaries from artists in, in the 50s and 60s, they all want to go to Paris. So that's why she went there. And so how did her work develop here? And how did her relationship between the body and canvas also change in this decade? Yes, that's so interesting. She had a huge studio there. And in this huge studio, even her canvases became much bigger. And as her canvases became much larger, she didn't use an easel anymore. And as she didn't use an easel anymore, she could project herself. So she attached it to the wall, actually. And she could put herself in front of the canvas and project her body, more or less, on wow. the canvas. And in these years, she also, she still worked in the first years, rather in an abstract way, but it was always about the body. She worked a lot with closed eyes now. And these paintings are really about tensions and yeah. distensions, about sensations of pressure, of expansion, of tightness in certain parts of her body. So you see certain knots where a lot of paint goes and you really see the body, even though it's abstract. That's so amazing. These are her favorite paintings, and these are her real body awareness paintings. But she liked both. She liked to work more realistically and more in an abstract way. 
And so with this, am I right in thinking she also actually lay down with the canvas at this point as well? And and how did then should she kind of translate this inner world onto her canvas at that time? The laying down story is also a story she became quite dismissive about because she did lay down, but she did it rarely. But there are a few photos of her, great photos, where we see her laying down. Yeah. And painting. But we have to know that these painting photos are really staged. So one photo shows her laying down and the canvas is laying beside her and she has a paintbrush in her hand, but the painting has already been finished. It's a staged thing. Yeah. And she said that in later years, but she did it. Mainly she worked not sitting, but standing. Yeah, in front of the canvas. And in this development of body awareness, I mean, where did that interest kind of come from? Because I really feel like in this decade, she's really sort of savagely observing self-portraiture and kind of is devoted to examining the very kind of human sentiments of being exposed and feeling vulnerable. My theory is that a major source for dealing with her body so much is that it bothered her. She's a highly sensitive person. She's hypersensitive to sound, to smell, to light. Her senses are very easily overwhelmed. Mm. And so I think this is a major reason why she became so obsessed with that. And she struggled her whole life how to... um, to find a term for what she's doing. Yeah, so in the 50s, she called it introspective experiences. But then she dismissed this term because it's not about introspection. Yeah, It's not about looking inside, but something which she senses with her whole body. She once even said it's an additional sense. And then from the 70s onward, she uses the term body awareness. And what she actually means by that is... She wanted to show the body how it felt, how it was from within the sensation of the body and not how it looked from the outside. And if she didn't feel a certain part of her body, she didn't depict it. So we very often see her without hair because she doesn't feel her hair. Oh, wow. Even in her more realistic paintings, she does that. Or also parts of her body which are missing when the body is fragmented. That's because she doesn't feel that part at that moment when she tries to capture it. That's something she also used to say. The body sensation changes every second. How can you capture it? But that was her big agenda. I mean, you totally see that if I'm, I'm looking at a work such as, you know, self-portrait as an animal or something. And it's as though, you know, the way that she uses colour as well, she's really kind of directing us into these intense parts. And it's as though the kind of the nose is propped up. And like you said, you know, she's very sensitive to smell. I mean, that totally makes sense that we're immediately drawn to the nostrils or something of this painting. And it's very red and very intense. And it's about the feeling in your body. I, I find them just so fascinating how when I look at them, I really feel like it's as though it's the body kind of turned inside out. Absolutely. That's exactly how she saw it. You see that perfectly well. I mean, that's, that's really, if you're sensitive to her paintings, you see it, just as you said. In her Paris period, she made a series of self-portraits as a monster. So she has an animal snout. Yeah. And she said that she doesn't feel the distance between the mouth and the nose and that why it goes together 
What is important to me is, even though throughout her artistic life, it was really hard for her, hard as a woman to be successful, there were always successes. And even in Paris, and in 1967, she was invited to the Salon de Mai, which at the time was the annual show of contemporary art in Paris. So she has this remarkable success. And nevertheless, she leaves Paris. And this is a pattern that repeats itself throughout her life. Whenever more recognition was on the horizon, Lasnik felt an urgent need to get away. You could almost call it, I do, fear of success. But at the same time, she had met a lot of Americans in, among others, Joan Mitchell. She was one of her friends in Paris at the time. So she had American friends there. And these American friends told her, oh, listen, come to the U.S. There it's much easier for women. And so that was also a motive for her to cross the ocean. And so she was almost 50 when in 1960. She moved to New York and started all over again. You have to imagine, almost 50. And she started from scratch. And indeed, after all those years in a male-dominated art world, she found her home in the feminist movement of the 1970s. Did she consider her painting feminist? (laughs) Good question. No, she didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really a good question. She considered her animation movies in which she made in New York, she considered these feminists, but not her paintings. She said paintings don't have any sex, they don't have a gender. And this had also, I think, very much to do with her generation because she didn't want to be pigeonholed. She didn't even want to compete with other women, not because she was so gentle to other women, but she didn't consider that worthy. She wanted to compete with men, because she knew exactly where the power was, and that was with men. And she wanted to know what Lucian Freud thinks of her art, or what Francis Bacon thinks of her art, or Gerhard Richter, for that matter. So these were the stars she wanted to be compared with, and never with other women artists. And she was easily very jealous of other women artists. Even her female students said she was harsher on them than on the boys and that they had to work harder. And so she repeated her story. But I really, really love the works that are kind of early 70s, such as Self-Portrait with Stick or the Triple Self-Portrait New Self. And it's really interesting because what I find interesting is the fact that she's a figurative painter in New York at a time when, you know, conceptual art really dominated the city. And I I know she went into film as well, but I'm so interested when you look at that expressive self-portrait from 1945 and then you even look at self-portrait with a stick, it's all still there. It feels like this really kind of linear career that she, yes, of course she develops, but it all comes back to that first painting in a way. I mean, tell us about the work that she was making during this time. She first tried to continue to do her body awareness in New York, but she saw that the Americans didn't want to understand that, that they called her paintings weird and uncanny. And so she adapted a little bit and embraced pop art, but still there was also this other strain of more realistic art of 
photorealism, which she despised, or also other women at the time, like Joan Semmel, yeah. whom she yeah. knew. Or Alice Neal, or, maybe. Or Alice Neal, of course. But she fought her whole life for painting, and she always had the feeling painting is on the decline, but she always stuck to it because that was her medium, and paint was like flesh for her. When Robert Storr once wrote an article about her with a quote by Willem de Kooning that paint is like flesh, she was completely thrilled. She loved that quote, and she was so happy that it was applied to her work because that's how she saw it too. So she embraces pop art at the time, but there's, it's not just copying. She combines it with her own style, with her own approach, with her awareness of the body without doing body awareness painting at that time. But you still see always how aware she is of what the body does. And you said a self-portrait with a stick. There we see her sitting with a naked upper body and a spear goes through her chest and she grasps this spear so it's not just a wound it's not just a pain it's also a weapon she is a warrior she's an amazon in this moment and she has a a very open and self-confident gaze in this painting and I think that's amazing. But the most surprising aspect of this painting is the background. Yeah. Because in the background, we see a canvas with a drawing. Oh, it's, yeah, a canvas. it's a canvas. It's a canvas. And we see a drawing of her mother. And this portrait exists not on a canvas, but as a drawing. And we see her mother. Her mother is dead almost 10 years at that time. And from the portrait, the arms of this woman, of this mother, protrude zombie-like arms, greenish arms. And she puts her hands on the shoulders of the naked Maria Lasnik in front of her. And there's so much ambivalence in this because is she supporting her daughter or is she oppressing her? putting her down? Or is she drawing her into her world, into the other world, into death? Yeah. And this is really, it's such a strong image. And I hardly ever can take my eyes from it when I see the original. <laughs> yeah. And I really have to recommend your audience, if you ever get the chance to see the real paintings, they have such a different impact yeah. than just the reproduction yeah. in the catalog. And they have such a power when you stand in front of them. Yes, I mean, completely. They really are. I remember seeing a joint show of hers and Renato Bertelman a few years ago at Sotheby's S2 in London. And the garish blues and greens that really just stand out at you. And they are quite large paintings as well. So they are just so overpowering. But I'm interested as well because, I mean, as the 70s goes on, I've read that her originality was in part defined by her resistance to photography. You know, she was so committed to working directly from life. Yet, during this decade, she's interweaving all these technological aspects and objects. You know, you have double self-portrait with camera. And it's as though she's taking a photograph of herself and maybe her other self. I don't really know. But I mean, what is her relationship with technology? A very difficult one. Mm. And double... 
Portrait with Camera is such a great example because it shows that even though this might be an American realist uh, (laughs) picture, it isn't. Because she portrays herself twice, once in a mirror as a filmmaker with her camera. And the camera looks a little bit like a weapon at the same time. So especially in combination with her intense and scrutinizing gaze, And so here you already see this very ambivalent relationship to technical instruments like cameras, medical machines also. And the second version of herself in this double portrait is in a completely different mood. She's sitting on the chair, the head is supported by her hand, and quite a contrast to the energetic, almost aggressive facial expression in the other image. So here she also works a little bit with her body awareness technique. She doesn't depict her face in the second of the two portraits, and she transforms her head into an old-fashioned camera, like these accordion cameras. Yeah. What does that mean? Since she has been making movies, she had the fear of becoming a machine herself. Even in her animation movies, she transforms her head into machines, into cameras, into ventilator. So on the one hand, she likes to do the movies. On the other hand, the technology is something threatening. It goes into her body. She doesn't really feel the frame of her body. Her body and the outer world are always interconnected. And if she uses a camera, it's almost as if the camera became a part of her. I think that's also the reason why she made those very early cyborg-like paintings, even though cyborg weren't a topic at that time yeah. yet. So she's pretty visionary in this respect. But I think that's so interesting because you look at something like science fiction with self-portrait, like you just mentioned. And and yes, of course, the fact that it was made in 1995 seems, you know, far beyond its time, but also it has that feeling again of technology or screens or something just completely consuming you that your head even shapes into like a cube or something I mean it's all so rigid and this kind of attention that you give the screen as well it's just so overwhelming this screen is your world it's what you're looking at it becomes your sight exactly and what might be also interesting is that she was a tv addict really and (laughs) yes she became a tv addict during her years in New York yeah there she had her first television at that time. Oh my her gosh. First television set, yes. Her first refrigerator too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and she became completely addicted. She wrote in her letters to her friends, my eyes are all red and because I have watched TV for eight hours and I don't paint anymore because I watch TV the whole time. And later she used this very self-ironically again, when she put a little TV set in front of her crotch and says, I don't need a husband, I have my TV. (gasps) She paints herself like that, yeah, so that the TV becomes the substitute for a relationship, yeah. Wow. But also so interesting how, you know, how she's looking at these themes in the 1980s. And I know that obviously TV was a very popular thing, but if you think about the way that we now interact with screens, it's our other self in a strange way. It's literally as though she's looking into the future and she knows how much technology and humanity will just become one in a few decades' time. Yes, and that's because she sensed it as as something threatening, even when it wasn't as threatening as it is now. She already got it, that this is 
this is not nothing. This is this is something weird. Yeah, if we connect with technology in this way, yeah, that sensitivity and I guess awareness as well. And then you have the eye works that she makes in about sort of nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety one, and it's this constant strain on the eye. Absolutely, yeah, that's how she experienced it. And because you mentioned photography, photography was her big enemy throughout her artistic life, and she thought that photography might kill painting. And she really struggled a lot with Gerhard Richter using photography for his work. She blamed herself for using photography because she betrays the art. How could she? How she shouldn't do that. That might affect the painting. And uh, why am I doing this? But still she did. And the paintings are really great and also pr- pretty popular. Yeah. Just to go back slightly, in 1980, she actually comes back to Vienna and she teaches at the Art Academy. And then the same year, she's actually representing Austria at the Venice Biennale. I mean, how come she came back to Vienna at this point? She came back because she didn't want to come back. She wanted to stay in New York, actually. But she came back because she was offered a full professorship at the Academy of Applied Arts for painting. And this offer, she finally said, yeah, I have to do that for economic reasons. And she came back to Vienna and became a professor. And I think she was a good teacher. She was a great teacher. But teaching was anything but easy for her. So it was very overwhelming for her, especially the many questions the students asked. And she experienced how hard it is for her to communicate about art. This was interesting also for her. And at the beginning, she was afraid that her art would suffer from teaching. But then she discovered that this is not the case, that she actually was very productive during this time. And this was the time when success slowly began and We could say that in those years, her career began gathering speed in 1980. And in 1985, she had her first huge retrospective in Vienna and several German cities. So this really was an important moment for her. And of course, she had much more money than she ever ever had before. I would like to talk about one painting. I think I haven't mentioned it yet, which she did at that time during her teaching. And... That's Chain of Tradition from 1983. And so far, I have mentioned how much she struggled to be innovative, to do the right thing, and how hard art was, and how much she had to fight. But there was also another side. She was always pretty self-confident. She was always convinced that she was a great painter. And as as we have already mentioned, even though she considered herself to be a feminist, she never wanted to be compared to other female artists. She wanted to be compared to other men and not just contemporary artists, but also the old masters of art history. And that's what this painting, The Chain of Tradition, is about. We see Lasnik kneeling naked in the front and she's supported by the past of the painters of art history that she most admired. Right behind her on the first plinth, we see Van Gogh and his hand rests supportively on Lasnik's shoulder. And behind him, there's Edward Monk, and in the back is Diego Velasquez. And there she she even includes a nice twist here by having him depict the background of her painting. And I have told you, she hated painting the backgrounds. Let's have Velasquez. (laughs) 
I think that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but it also shows that there was some self-confidence, yeah. right? But I think that you see that throughout her entire oeuvre. I mean, even just that expressive self-portrait at the beginning, she feels confident in it as we go around, even at double self-portrait with camera. There's a confidence right. in it. Even these strange, grotesque science fiction portraits, there, there's a real confidence to them. You know, the way that she uses colour as well is so... It feels so certain. Even something like My Teddy is more real than me from 2002, where she literally paints herself blue. It feels like she's not afraid to do that. She's not afraid to say, actually, this is how I feel and this is how I'm going to paint myself. And kind of using Mm -hmm. these colours that are poisonous. The yellows, they're they're, they're very discomforting. The yellows are purplish. The reds are greenish. They're unfriendly colours. And it's as though she's saying, I'm going to paint this and you're going to look at this and you're going to suffer like we said earlier in an uncomfortable way but in an exciting way because it's the internal feeling of a painting and even something like hospital which is in 2005 in the last decade of her life and the way that she's portrayed the body is not just in a single form but it's you know mirrored and multiplied and sort of suggesting this rebirth of the self through the medium of paint and a sort of departure of the subject she knows that she's deteriorating yet there's still this confidence and greatness to it. (laughs) Absolutely, exactly. There's this self-confidence and there might also be this aggression towards the beholder. But what makes her work so fascinating for me is that within the aggression, there's also a tenderness. Yes. Like in the painting with the teddy bear. Yeah. It's so endearing. It has an aggressive aspect, but it has also, you see this vulnerability of this painter and of this woman she portrays, which is herself <laughs> in this moment, embracing the teddy that is more real than she is. And that's so, I'm always very touched by her paintings. She shows everything of herself. She doesn't mask herself. She shows everything. You see inside her. You see the body. You see, and you see more than that. She's psychologically very sophisticated, I think. Yeah. Even though not on the surface. That's a very subtle thing. But I think it's the vulnerability and the kind of powerlessness that she gives herself to these works. And also I think it's the embarrassment. I know she said, embarrassment is a challenge. I want to paint things that are uncomfortable. And it's saying, even just the teddy, I mean, you can't quite believe what you're looking at. This grown woman who is still hiding behind her teddy, yet she's unafraid to be embarrassed. And frankly, I've never seen that in the history of art. She's unembarrassed to show her old aging body. Yeah. What a taboo to break still, even today, but especially in, in those years or 20 years ago. And there's a painting, it's called The Frog Princess. Yeah. It's not just the aging body, it's also the sexual desire of the aging body yeah. that she is not embarrassed to show. I I told you before about the TV in front of her crotch. Here we don't have the TV instead of a husband or a man. Here we have a huge amphibian, a huge frog sitting on her vagina in a rather unambiguous way. And this frog is not going to transform itself into a lovely prince. Yeah. Maybe that's exactly how she wants it. Maybe she doesn't want it to be a prince because 
it fulfills a certain sexual desire, the amphibian as something sexual is in iconographically pretty common. So that's also a possible way to see it. And she's not embarrassed. No, not at all. And what do you think she taught you? Exactly that. Not to be embarrassed. Mm. Exactly that. I think that's the main lesson I learned on how to deal with sensitivities, not to mask them, to show them. Also in my writing, I tried to do that. Fantastic. Natalie, thank you so much. This has been just the most incredible insight into Maria Lasnik ever. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, considering that you never met Maria, uh, if you had the chance to, what would you say to her? I would want to give her comfort that everything is good, that her paintings won't disappear, that she is now among the great artists of the 20th century, that she doesn't have to fear to be forgotten, that she will, because that was so much her fear. And her paintings were like children for her. She didn't want to give them away. This was also a reason why she didn't want to sell. She didn't want to go have, have them in really? exhibitions. Yes. I mean, her galleries can tell you stories that are incredible. Yeah. Friedrich Petzl, for example, told me that he had the feeling she didn't only want to know who bought her work, but also in which context they would be there and how this person was, so that he had the feeling he had to give her the CV of the potential buyer, because otherwise she wouldn't agree. And she sometimes even said, no, don't sell to this guy. I don't want that. Huh? So this was something where she boycotted herself a little bit too. That's what all her galleries say. She could have had much more success much earlier in her life if she hadn't been that way. And that's what I want, would want to say her. Just relax. Everything is fine. You're a great painter. Your work is <laughs> successful. And yeah, relax. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a great conversation. You have so great insights into her work. You really know a lot. Thank you all so much for listening to the 35th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Natalie Lettner or Maria Lasnik. I am completely overwhelmed at Maria's life and work and I'm really looking forward to seeing her work in the flesh again. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Amber Miller and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artist podcast with me, Katie Hessel. <laughs>